Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. We had Emily Oster on the show in October 2018 for a conversation about her best-selling book, Expecting Better. In that episode, we talked about the data and the advice given to pregnant women and whether or not some of the conventional women about what you're supposed to... Did I just say conventional women? I meant conventional wisdom, whether or not the conventional wisdom around pregnancy is true and how to make decisions. We talked about whether or not the research can help us understand the risks and outcomes related to caffeine intake, alcohol consumption, and television among many other things. If you are curious about pregnancy, if you are listening and you are pregnant and you're wondering like, is soft cheese okay? Can I just have a sip of alcohol? And like, why can't I have three cups of coffee? Then go back and check out episode number 80 for our first conversation with Emily. Now, those of you that remember our last episode, you know that Emily was working on a second book and we couldn't tell you the title at the time. Well, now it's out and the book is all about parenting, babies, and toddlers. That is, what do you do when you actually have the baby in your hands and you're faced with a million new parenting decisions like early newborn interventions, whether or not you should do breastfeeding or formula feeding, where your baby should sleep and how they should sleep and whether or not to sleep train. So today on the show, we get to have Emily back and talk to a highly respected economist and professor all about data and research. How do we make these really emotional, complex, and challenging decisions when we're presented with a ton of conflicting information and there are so many different inflammatory posts on the internet that don't necessarily help us? Take sleep training, for example, which can be a hotbed topic. I hear from parents in whispered voices that they finally did it and they're so grateful for it. And other people will claim that it can be the worst thing you'd ever do to your kid. Well, it's not, as we'll talk about, and there are various methods to the madness. And while it can be a really hard thing to do to teach your kid how to self-soothe and, well, to listen to them cry, there's no evidence to suggest that you are in any way doing any form of damage to your children. That said, if you choose not to sleep train, that is, you don't want to engage in cry-it-out methods or Ferber methods, you're not a worse parent either. You might be getting a little less sleep than your sleep training peers, but the difference between kids who are sleep trained and not, there's no difference. There's no evidence. There's no data to suggest that you are a better parent if you make one of these decisions than the other. We are also going to talk about vaccinations and the extensive medical literature around vaccines and what the risks really are when it comes to vaccines. There's a fascinating study that she talks about in her book, and it is in like 1,100-page tome where a huge body of researchers in the Institute of Medicine went through and categorized every single possible outcome that could happen, things like a rash, a fever, a swollen leg, all of the possible things that people have ever said around vaccinations, and then they cross-listed with all of the vaccines that you can be given, and they went through and systematically reviewed every single piece of data and every single study, and there are a ton of studies on vaccines. And then Emily's going to talk about what they found. And then lastly, the third big topic that we bring up on today's episode is breastfeeding and what the benefits are and why we might collectively try to tamp down some of the claims that breastfeeding is this panacea and solution to everything because it's 
It's just not. Breastfeeding does have some benefits, and we'll talk about what benefits are actually true and why all of the benefits to breastfeeding that people talk about, like it's the thing that's going to change your child's life. They'll be smarter, taller, skinnier, all the things. Those are a little bit or a lot overstated. Her new book, Crib Sheet, is out everywhere, and these topics, sleep training, breastfeeding, vaccinations, are just a few of the topics that are covered. I will link to her book in the show notes, so if you are tired and sleep-deprived and you want a resource to help you make a decision, you can grab it. That said, parenting decisions are not universal, and there are many ways to make different decisions, even in the face of a lot of information. So every family, kid, and situation is different. With that said... Let's dive into this conversation with Emily about all the things I probably shouldn't bring up, but we're going to do it anyways. Let's have fun. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. If you have not checked out our mini books yet, go check them out. We have five mini books for parents, entrepreneurs, and mothers that we are making here at Startup Pregnant. We have the Parenting Reading List, which is if you are busy but you want to know what books I'm reading on parenting, I do this thing where I write a little summary of every book that I've read and I take notes and you can just go read my notes. You don't have to read the whole book. From there, if there's a book that catches your interest, you can go get the books that you want, but you don't have to read every single book. I'm a big geek and I've done that for you. I also have the pregnancy reading list. Surprise, surprise. That's the same. I take a whole bunch of notes on books and I put them into one book just for you. So that's the parenting reading list and the pregnancy reading list. Both are mini books. They're short. They're not long. And you can skim them and flip them as a Kindle or a PDF or whatever way that you want to read it. I also have three other books. One of them is called Pregnancy Affirmations, and that is for people who are pregnant and want to get some good words in your mind. I reached out and interviewed a whole bunch of people and asked them for their favorite mantras and affirmations. So check that out if you want. There are two more, including the Startup Mama profiles and my favorite, Sticky Situations, which is all about how to get out of sticky situations. If you want to check out any of these mini books, go to startuppregnant.com slash mini books to check them out. We are releasing them throughout 2019, and if you are on our email list, you get a first preview, and I often give out coupons for free copies of these books. We've got five mini books. They're over at startuppregnant.com slash mini books, and the link is in the show notes if you want to scroll into the show notes and check it out, or go to our website, startuppregnant.com, and look for mini books, and you will get them. Emily, it is so great to have you back on the show. And thanks for joining us for a second interview. Thank you for having me back. I'm really excited. So I am thrilled to have you back. We are recording this interview at 9.15 a.m. on a Monday morning in April. Would you start by telling us about not your morning routine? I asked you that on the last interview. Um, your nighttime routine. What time did you all go to bed last night? And then what time do you go to sleep? So my kids are luckily very structured at bedtime. So the nighttime routine, we have dinner, they took a bath. My son likes to use all the bath colors at the same time. So the bath is kind of like black. So that's nice. And then he went to bed at 7.15. He just turned four. So he at 7.15, it's like lights out. And then my daughter has a longer wind up where I read to her 
And then she and I read together in an activity she refers to as reading club for 20 minutes. And then she is in bed lights out at like five after eight. And then usually I would be like in bed at like 9.15 and then like, you know, read a little and then go to sleep. But last night was Game of Thrones premiere. So we went to bed when the Game of Thrones premiere ended at 10.15. (laughs) That it's always like a parenting dilemma from our, for all of my friends. It's like, do you stay up on Sunday or not because of Game of Thrones? No, I mean, I I was like, we were like, I don't know, like, can we stay up since ten fifteen? And my husband was like, I didn't work, go to college for all that time, and if I worked for all that time to have to go to bed at nine thirty, like, we're gonna stay up for Game of Thrones. <laughs> I was like, okay. That's so funny. We had somebody over at our house on Saturday and they're like, I think I'm going to catch up on Game of Thrones so I can watch with you tomorrow. And (laughs) I'm not as good at watching. My husband updates me. My husband just opened his eyes and was like, yeah, good luck with that. Okay. So I want to start our conversation today with talking about the book itself. What is the name of this book and why did you write it? The name of the book is Crib Sheet. And, you know, I wrote it because I had written the first book and I really hesitated about writing a second because I wasn't sure that I had anything to say or that I really sort of saw the book coming together. But, you know, as I, my kids have grown up and I have thought about a lot of these issues about, you know, breastfeeding or vaccinations or how to discipline a toddler, I did come to think, you know, actually there, there is a lot that data or decision-making can say about these, these decisions, these choices. And so I sort of finally kind of bit the, bit the bullet and decided to, to write the book really in the hopes that it would help parents make, you know, happier and more confident decisions in their parenting. What was the process of writing the second book like? When did you start the research and how many studies did you have to review to look into putting this book together? So I, have been doing, I often do the research for the books kind of as I parent. So at least some of the studies and some of these things I had thought about before I did it, but I really started in earnest probably two and a half years ago, kind of trying to, to really like put things together and think about an outline and think about writing. And I read quite a lot of studies, many studies. I mean, if you look at the book, if you get the book, which you should, please, there's like, you know, 15 single space pages of references at the end. And that probably represents, you know, like a quarter of the studies that I looked at because you don't always put every study in the, in the book. So it was, it was a, a lot of studies and, you know, a lot of these topics, particularly things like breastfeeding are just, there's so much in the literature to, to read and sort of so much to try to learn about, to get an overall picture of, you know, what the evidence really says. You, I think, and one other guest that we've had, Lily Nichols, uh, probably tie or vie for most number of studies to go into a book. Actually, Lisa Hendrickson Jacks also Jack also has a tremendous number of studies. I think there's like 900 for one of her books. It's a, it's a good club. Good club. So <laughs> it's, it's a pretty pretty good club. So I want to dive into some of the topics because I just finished reading this book and. There is way more that we can we can't cover it all in a podcast episode. Sorry, listeners, but we can touch on a couple of topics. I want to start with the topic of breastfeeding because I think one of the cool things that you I'm one of the things I'm glad that you bring up. Maybe it's not so cool is that breastfeeding can be really hard, 
And before we get into the all of the claims about how amazing breastfeeding is, you will have smarter children, they will be Superman, like every world problem will be solved if only you just breastfeed. I'd like to ask you to share your your personal breastfeeding story and what it was like for you and and maybe what surprised you about it. So, you know, my my first kid is a is a girl um and and when she was born, I don't I don't know. I mean, I really I wanted to breastfeed. It was very important to me and I had not realized how difficult it would be. So, you know, part of it is like, it took my milk a long time to come in. I just sort of couldn't quite get it, like sort of how it was going to work. And my daughter didn't really seem to like it very much. I interpreted that as her not liking me very much. And I was like, but I was just so committed to doing it. And it was, it was really hard for the first, I don't know, three months. And, you know, she would only nurse from one side. She would only nurse in sort of certain circumstances, like if she were very tired, if we had the right kind of pillow. And, you know, I had had this idea that like, you see people, they're like out to brunch and they're having brunch and their baby's just kind of happily nursing. And I like, I thought I would like be that person. And instead I was the person who was like, baby was screaming hysterically while I was trying to like wrestle my boob out of my boob because she'd only eat from one side for a long time. And it was just such, I mean, I'm sort of like sweating telling you about it. And it was just, I just found it so difficult and it did eventually get easier. So, you know, at some point I, the way that I interpreted it, she just sort of gave up and was like, I guess this crazy lady's like really into this. I might as well get on the train. Fine. And I, I sort of nursed her at least some of the time until she was, you know, I guess uh, 10 or 11 months. But, you know, the experience was not, I do not look back on it thinking like, wow, that was like really to begin my parenting journey. And then, you know, with the second kid, I had a much easier time. I think part of it is sort of know what you're doing a little bit more. And my second kid is just like a more relaxed person in some ways. And that was okay. And I got some of that sort of positive stuff. But I sort of, when I look back on it now, I feel that I feel like I was really, probably too hard on myself in those first months with, with Penelope. Do you, you had a second child because I'm trying to gauge, do you think that you would have done anything differently had you had more information or what ended up with happening with your second child? So with my second child, he just took to it much easier. And I also had much more milk or like at the beginning. So I hadn't realized, um, this is something I talk about some in the book. I hadn't realized how long it takes for many people's milk to come in. They sort of told me like, oh, it'll take a day with case at all. And with the second kid, it just, it's typically much faster. Your body's like more primed to, to do it. So I think for that reason, we had a, we had an easier time starting. And, and I think that I was just not as like anxious about it, which was probably helpful. I mean, I think if I had to go back and do the first one again, I would have been like way more prepared for the possibility that we would have to supplement a little at the beginning. And I just would have thought more about exactly how I wanted to do it. I was just totally unprepared. I like, I'd not thought at all about having a baby. It would seem. (laughs) (laughs) As is probably the case for most people, it is so much to think about and so many things and you're, you don't even know what to do in the first couple of months. Like why, what is going on? (laughs) Yeah. No, I remember like what coming home and like, like having the car seat and like putting it down and being like, oh my God, it's going to wake up. Like, what are we going to do with it (laughs) when it gets up? There's so many pieces of that. Like the other one, 
that and if we have a lot of listeners who are pregnant or thinking about having kids. So they are in the before state of the scenario. And the one that I can't wrap my head around still, even though I've had two children, is that someone, an adult, needs to be with the child always. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Like, yeah. I just, I know that it's true, but I don't think I understood how much it changes your schedule, your structure, your freedom, like your ability to leave the house. Yeah. I mean, there is a point when your kids are a little older when like they'll play by themselves for like 20 minutes and then you'll be like, oh my God, like what, what should I do with my 20 minutes? Like, oh my, and then it's oh, being like, oh my God, what, what happens? <laughs> so that's really funny. You know, that, and that sort of like jumps up at you eventually, but eventually. not at the beginning, <laughs> eventually. So breastfeeding can be really hard. And one of the things that you touch on in your book that I think is is really great is is that we have this idea that breastfeeding can be this panacea and that it can do all of these amazing things and be this incredible benefit, but also it's incredibly hard. So that puts women in kind of a pickle. Can you talk about the research that you looked at around breastfeeding and what claims are supported and which ones are maybe not supported? Sure. So, I mean, I think when you start thinking about breastfeeding, the number of things that people say it's important for is just astonishing. Like, and some of them seem crazy. So one of, like when I, there was at some point I was reading an article, it was like, this breastfeeding is important for better friendships. It's like, what kind of friends do you people have, you know? And so, but even for your kid, it's like, you know, they're going to, it's going to make them smarter and taller and have less allergies and less asthma and, you know, healthier in the first year and set them up for the best start. And, you know, when I look into the evidence, there is some benefit to breastfeeding that is demonstrated in the data, but the benefits are just much, much smaller than what people claim. So the things that really do have some strong support are uh, improved the gastrointestinal health in the first year of life. So, you know, fewer problems with diarrhea, maybe some evidence that it lowers ear infections in the first year, a little bit of evidence about eczema again in the first year of life. And then, you know, surprisingly, probably the most significant long-term benefit is actually, it looks like it's, it's good for preventing breast cancer in mom. So not about the baby at all. And that's kind of it. So, you know, that's a good, it's a good amount of benefits, but there isn't any support in the data for things like IQ effects or effects on obesity or effects on long-term health for the kid. Those things just, just do not have support when we look at the best data. And I think in some ways it's like a little reassuring for people who are struggling with breastfeeding or for whom it doesn't seem like the right choice that these, these claims that are so grandiose are, I think, overstated based on what we really know from actual evidence. So, with all of this information in front of you, where you say, okay, I have, I, I now know that there's some small benefits over here for eczema and for the child. And the biggest benefit is actually for the mom, which I found fascinating. How do you make a decision about breastfeeding? And, and what do you recommend in terms of the decision making process for moms? I think in general, with almost all decisions in parenting, we spend so much time talking about like what's good for the baby, what's good for the baby, what's good for the baby, without stepping back and saying, we also need to think about what's good for the for the family. And different families are going to have different preferences, different things that work for them. So I think in the case of breastfeeding, you know, what the data says is that, you know, there are some small benefits. They're not in, enormously, unfathomably large. They're there, but they're small. 
And so some of this should be about thinking about like what's going to work for your family. What do you want to do? What kind of, you know, structure do you have? Are you going back to work? Are you not going back to work? You know, are you going to be able to pump in your office? There's sort of all kinds of constraints on parents and things about parental preferences. And I, what I talk a lot about in the book, in breastfeeding, but in other settings also, is you want to really sit down and think about like what's going to work for for our family and for me as, as the mom, uh, and then make a decision based at least in part on that, not entirely based on, you know, things about the baby. That makes a ton of sense. And I think that this this example in particular was really interesting because because just like you said, there are all of these reasons that people share about doing it that's just for the child. And they don't think about the mom as a separate entity or a benefactor. The breast cancer research I found um, pretty remarkable because it seems to be such a large benefit, larger than almost anything else that you talk about in the book in some ways. Can you go into some specifics about how, about the benefit of breastfeeding on breast cancer? Yeah. So, you know, this comes from looking at differences in breast cancer rates for for women who, you know, who do and do not breastfeed. And yeah, as you say, the evidence is really large. So the the sort of the reductions in in breast cancer are maybe 20 to 30 percent reduction, which is actually like a lot, given that this is a very common cancer. So I think that's a, a pretty compelling result. And, and the other thing there is that, that actually there's some reasons to think that it would be true based on biology. So it looks like, it looks like there are some sort of things about the cells of the breast which uh, change when you, when you breastfeed that help prevent cancer. So I think that, that, you know, that is like a real benefit that people don't talk about, talk about too much, which maybe we should talk about more as a reason to do it, but is, is sort of separate from some of these benefits for your kids where people I think feel like if they don't do this they're they're doing something terrible for their for their baby which just isn't true which just isn't true you're not being a terrible parent for your baby if you feed them yeah period. i mean i think it's it's just it's period it's just not it's nice there are some small benefits but this incredible emphasis and the shame that people feel if you know they can't do it or they don't want to do it, I think that that's just really not good. That is not a healthy way to to approach the early months of parenting to be sort of feeling bad about something all the time. It's such a big and complicated topic in some ways, like many things are around parenting. And if for people listening, if you want to go in and read her chapter on breastfeeding, or just know that like breastfeeding can be phenomenally difficult. It was for me. Emily shared her story about it being challenging with her first child. And then also, it may not be this this global benefit to your child that that everyone insists that it is. Although if you want to do it as well, that's like your choice, right? All of these things are always about parental choices. Emily, yeah. I want to... I think just to say sort of one last thing about breastfeeding, which is like, I think that it is that in the US in particular, we sort of say this is the most important thing. It's the most important thing. It's the most important thing. And then we make it really hard by not providing people a lot of support and being like, oh, don't take your boobs out in public. Like nobody wants to see that. And so I think there's a sort of tension here where we should simultaneously... I think it would be great to do a little bit less shaming, but also to be more supportive if women actually do think this is an important thing that they that they want to do. A thousand percent. Amen. I think it was in 2018 that it was finally okay for a woman to breastfeed on the Senate floor. It's insane. 
<laughs> and and in Idaho. I think those are the two places where it was finally okay. <laughs> but before that, it was like there are decency laws about not seeing a breast in public. And you just have to shake your head and be like, well, I want like, why is breastfeeding so hard for people? I wonder. I wonder if maybe these. Yeah, I wonder. These, <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> what could it be? Who knows? Could be anything. Maybe it could be the lack of parental leave. So I want to shift over and ask you about, I have a question about, there's just one sentence you said in the book, and I laughed so hard. You wrote, I'll read it out loud. You said, we used our family task management software, Asana, for the planning. <laughs> and and this was <laughs> in your chapter on your sleep training, on sleep training and baby sleep. And I first want to ask you actually about this project, this family task management software. Can you talk to us about your this family planning project management system that you have? Sure. So Asana is a great task management system that I will say I also use some at work. So it is not intended for planning your family, but I would I would recommend it. I mean, I think, you know, you do a lot of like once you have kids, there are a lot of things that have to happen. Like, you know, your like things about organizing, making decisions about your kids or just even like organizing like you know, soccer, whatever the, the events that you have to, you have to do. So actually we use one of these, like these task management systems where you can set up a task, like, you know, organize the kids clothes. And then you can say, okay, this is the time that this is due. And, you know, here's what we need to do for it. And then the other person can comment like, oh, you know, I think that in general, we haven't had enough shirts. And you'd be like, okay, I'm going to make sure I get more shirts when I review the clothing. And then you can kind of like chat about it and then make some decisions. And then you get to close the task and feel like you've accomplished things. So that is one of the many crazy things that my family does. (laughs) I, I find it phenomenal because I think it's actually like it could be really useful for people, which is why I wanted to bring it up, that there are the geekiest of geeks out there, myself included, that use tools and systems ostensibly created for the workplace for our families. We interviewed somebody else who had um, set up entire operations manuals for her family. Nice. Yeah, so that's, like, I- <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> There's a whole episode people listening about how to set up an operations manual for your family. And her goal was to have anyone be able to come in and run her family if she just needed to go and like on a, a two day trip, anyone could come in and use the binder. And I was like, that is pretty, I mean, that's pretty great. So when I saw that you had the that's sentence actually, about, I know I should do that. <laughs> I, I'm traveling a lot for the book and I'm the only person who's able to make the lunches at the moment, which is like totally not robust. And I would never allow that to happen in my job. You know, that I could be the only person who could do something. I'm going to do a manual. That's great. <laughs> So well, I'll send you the episode too, so you can listen because she she has all of these. I was like, you are a, you're a COO, aren't you? Like this is your this is your life. And she's like, I did. I just took it over to my family. So for people who don't know, well, before I get into that, I want to. How did you how did you even think to add Asana to your life? Like why why was that preferable for you in your partnership versus just using email or talking about it? How did it help you? I think for us, it helps to like uh, to avoid conflict. I mean, I think ha- for us, having things in writing is really helpful for not having conflicts because, you know, there are a lot of decisions to make and, you know, things to do around your kids. And this is a way to sort of get to, to talk things out in a kind of calm and organized way. And so particularly for something, I mean, this in the book, it's in the context of sleep training, which is a thing where like, people could disagree or, you know, we could have a different opinion about, you know, what's the right timing and so on. I think it's, it's very helpful 
to be able to say, you know, here's what I think in writing rather than to have to like kind of argue about it. And especially when like emotions are high. And so I think for us, that's part of it. And I think the reason to do it in Asana other than an email is the same reason that you do it at your work, which is like this way it's, it's sort of single threaded and you can go back and see like, what did we decide about this? And when we were doing some of this stuff with Finn, we went back to like, okay, let's find the Asana task from Penelope. And so we can see what we did with Penelope. We're going to do it like the same or different. That's really funny. So who gets final say? How does that work? I mean, I I think ideally there's no CEO, COO structure in my household. And so, you know, usually we will, usually we will uh, agree. Um, It's sort of pretty rare that we would have a strong disagreement about something with the kids. And I don't think that one or the other of us would necessarily have final say. Who organizes? Is it both of you are self-organizing and adding tasks? Mostly I organize. Mostly you organize. Okay. I find this these details so endlessly fascinating. So thank you for indulging me. I saw that. I highlighted that. I highlighted a hilarious sentence about, <laughs> it was something about like most people don't like having their penises poked. And I was like, yep, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and there was a, a couple of <laughs> Just a statement <laughs> effect. There are a couple other places where I just couldn't stop laughing because I was like, oh, that's really funny. So this, this uh, divergence into project management for our families comes up in a chapter on sleep training and on how to uh, get sleep, you and the kid. Can you talk to us about the the puzzles of sleep training and what the, some of the research shows? So just for people who are not, who do not maybe have, are not parents yet. Um, so sleep training is sort of a general term that refers to, to trying to get your kid to sleep on their own or fall asleep on their own. And the big debates in the sleep training are about using what's called cry it out. So like letting your baby cry themselves to sleep. And there's, this is like the technique that this, that Ferber recommends. And so if people say, I'm going to Ferberize my baby, they mean they're going to let their baby cry themselves to sleep. And the, The thing about this is it is very controversial. On the one hand, there is a lot of evidence that this type of thing really works for improving kids' sleep. So if you sort of, you know, put your kid in their pajamas and put their kid in their diaper and say, you know, good night and like leave them in their their bed and close the door, they will cry some typically and then they will fall asleep. And if you do that, you know, five or six nights in a row for the average baby, they will not cry as much or they will not cry at all and then they will sleep better and they will learn to fall asleep on their own and they will typically sleep longer. This is effective based on evidence at making kids sleep better. And it's also, I think this is kind of important to note, even before I talk about the kind of things that people don't like about it, this is also quite good for improving the lives of parents. So when studies look at at the effects of sleep training, one of the things they look at is like maternal depression, parent marital satisfaction, and those things are all going up after people sleep train their kids because it is easier to sleep after your kid is sleeping and people benefit from sleep, adults benefit from sleep as well. Now, on the flip side, a lot of people don't like these techniques. They actually can be quite hard to do because it is very hard straight up. It's hard to listen to your baby cry. And a lot of people think it is also potentially damaging for your kid for the long term. And the the sort of story that people have is that, you know, when you sleep train your kid, they're going to learn that, you know, you aren't going to come when they call and that people will not meet their needs. And then they will struggle to form attachments as adults and struggle for their whole lives at, you know, being successful people. 
is the basic idea. There just isn't any evidence of that in the data. So there are a bunch of randomized controlled trials where sleep training techniques are evaluated and kids are followed up, you know, immediately after the sleep training and, you know, five or six years later. And all those studies find is that immediately after the sleep training, the kids are better rested. And six years later, they look just like the kids who were not sleep trained. There's no evidence of differences in attachment or differences in behavior problems or any of these other kinds of outcomes that people worry about. So, you know, what I say in the book is like, it doesn't mean you have to sleep train your kid. You know, it is not going to be for everyone and kids are kids are different and parents are, are different. But if this is something that you want to do, the data is supportive that it is not going to damage your your baby. So that's like a long answer to sleep training is cool if you want to do it. I like that short summary. Sleep training is cool if you want to do it. But I love the detail and the analysis that you go into. And also, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this is one of the chapters, but sleep training and vaccines are the two chapters that have like a lot of interesting studies or more than others where it's, uh, there's some questions in parenting where you're just kind of shrugging. You say, well, we need more research. We need more research because we just don't know. And this one seems much more clear that sleep training, not harmful. Yeah, exactly. So I think in a lot of the stuff we talk about, I talk about like there's sort of there's limits to the research. I talk about like TV, like, yeah, we don't really know that much about about that. But this is a place where we have many, many studies which suggest that it is not harmful and that it has some benefits. And they're very good studies. They're, you know, randomized trials. You know, there are review articles with 20, more than 20 randomized controlled trials, which look at these kind of techniques. So it's just a, a place with a lot of good, a good evidence. So I think we're sort of more confident in the conclusions than we might be in some of these other settings. And the other thing that I find really interesting that you brought up is that, again, one of the benefits isn't just for the child, although the the benefits for the child are clear here, the benefits for the mom and the parents, like eight months, 10 months, 12 months of sleep deprivation for the parents can result in a parent that is that has depression or is extremely fatigued or the down the line consequences we don't know. But what if someone loses a job because they're not getting enough sleep or other accidents happen? Like there are benefits to parents getting sleep. And so that can be an argument for for doing it. But again, also what you said about it can be really hard to do. Like, it's it's hard. Can you talk about that part? Like, was it hard for you to do? And did you do it? Yes. Um, we did. We did. We did with both kids. And I found with Penelope, it was it was really hard. I think part of it is we didn't know what we were doing, as is probably clear from a lot of things I've said. And so, you know, we had we sort of tried like 12 different versions of this a little bit here, a little bit there, you know, this thing, that thing. And I think we weren't super consistent, which was, you know, made it made it less effective, but also probably harder on us. But yeah, I mean, I found it it's really hard to listen to your baby cry and, and also to sort of, it's hard to do it. And it's hard when you, you are not sure it's, it's right. And I sort of knew about this evidence, but it was, I hadn't really, you know, drilled into it. And, and I was, we were just kind of trying to figure it out. And it was, it was, you know, it was, it, it's really hard. And then when we came around to doing it with Finn, you know, I think one is I, we just had a much better, clearer idea about like that this is a good idea and that, you know, Penelope, once we kind of worked it out, she was a great sleeper and it clearly really benefited her to be able to sleep consistently through the night and it clearly benefited us. So with Finn, we were like, okay, we're ready to do this. We know how we're going to do it. And I have in the book like a little box with sort of our our final Asana Asana generated plan. And so we sort of had this plan going in and we were like, we were ready. And it was it was still hard. It's hard to listen to your baby cry. Although 
part of it was that, you know, Penelope was very committed to the sleep training. She thought it was a really good idea. And, you know, so we would like, we, he was crying and we were putting her to bed and she was like, mom, you got it. Like, you got to let him cry. You know, that's, that's how he's going to learn to do this. Um, and so I think for me, you know, like even as a person who like, who like is like, whose main thing is like, okay, I'm going to make decisions based on data. And like, I know this data is good. Even for me, it's like that anecdote, like the other kid being like, you know what, like I turned out totally fine and I did this and like, it's important that we do it. Like that was really valuable, even though of course I I knew all the data. And so I think, you know, this is just, it's a hard thing to do. It's not going to be for everybody, but I think it, it does have some, it does have some real benefits. We, my neuroses in this kind of arena is taking obsessive notes. So I just, I charted and wrote down absolutely everything that happened. And so I have this Google document of sleep training for both of my children. And I just wrote down day in, day out, because I knew I wouldn't remember in the future what actually happened. And I would probably pass along like, oh yeah, it took us, I don't know, five-ish days. I have all of the notes and the timestamps. And then when the parents woke up in a panic, mostly me, and my husband had a rule and he said, you cannot go get the baby until you hug me until I wake up. And then he would bear hug me and not let me leave the bed because <laughs> I was like, I have to go get the baby. And he was like, we are just going to wait at least 20 minutes. And then in a- invariably for us, this was just, again, one data point, not everybody's story. Our kids put themselves back to sleep. And then five days later, they were sleeping in 10 and 11 hour stretches. And I was just, I didn't even know what to do with myself. My mind was blown. But I don't think I could have gotten through it had I not known that it was effective. And we even had a neighbor stop us on the street who had uh, twin four-year-olds and a newborn. And he was like, just verbalize, just do it. And I was like, I don't know what you're saying, but okay. Yes. No, it was, I mean, I think it is like when we were going to do this with Finn, I remember like, you know, texting my, one of my friends being like, okay, we're going to do it. And she was like, just remember, this is a good idea. This is a good idea. Like if you need to text me in the middle of the night so I can remind you it's a good idea, like I will, you know, I will be here for you. And I think it is, you know, it is the sort of realization that, that, you know, this isn't going to be damaging and that, you know, on the other end of it, like both you and the kid are likely to be happier. The last thing I'll reiterate that I think is really useful is that the long-term studies that you did cite show that there isn't a difference. It's not like sleep training parents who have decided to do this can say, ha my children are better at six years old. Like, if you are a parent and you choose your one method or another for you and your child's sleep, you will have children at six years old that are healthy, happy, and fine. Like, there isn't, we can't, we can't start to divide and conquer us in this way. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, that again, for some people, this isn't, it's not going to be particularly relevant or you're not going to want to do it or the kid's going to be sleeping in the bed with you. And so it's going to be, you know, not a, not a viable solution. And I think that's totally, that is also a, a great choice. So let's turn to maybe the most, um, the topic that gets the most airtime in the media around parenting, which is vaccination. And we are living at a time, I live in New York City, we're having um, measles outbreaks, both to the north of me, where uh, we live, where my husband works, and then also in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, there's a lot of measles outbreaks right now. And the mayor just... I believe it's the mayor. I'm going to have to double check. But um, one of the city officials just issued more strict guidelines for um, vaccinations and penalties for people that don't vaccinate, which I find fascinating. And it is a loaded and controversial topic to many people. Can you talk about vaccination? I think 
I should be very clear, the book is very positive on vaccination. And, you know, I think that the evidence that vaccines are safe and effective is is overwhelming and is, you know, there is a lot of it. The central concerns that people raise with vaccines, I think, just simply do not have support in the data. Things like autism, you know, there's just no evidence that vaccines cause autism at all. There's a tremendous amount of evidence that they do not. But what I, I think is sort of important to acknowledge in this in this discussion is that, you know, the kind of pro-vaccine side often spends a lot of time just saying, like, vaccines are safe and effective, trust us, because we're experts. But I thought about sort of how to address this in the book. I wanted to to try to do something a little bit different. And rather than saying, you know, trust me, I'm an expert, I read all this stuff, actually try to under, like help people understand a little bit about like what is the kind of data that we can use to, you know, look at these questions. And also, you know, what is the limitation of that? of that data and why are some of these anecdotal kind of reports that people like to use, why are those not so reliable as a way to learn about the impacts of vaccines? So I actually go through like the, you know, 1200 page Institute of Medicine report, which is boring mostly, and sort of talk about like what is in that report, you know, how we put together tons and tons of scientists and told them to write 1200 pages about, you know, adverse effects of vaccines. Like what did they find and what, what are the actual risks? in the sort of probably vain hope that some people will read this and say, okay, now I kind of understand why you're saying vaccines are safe and effective and maybe understand it to the point where people actually be willing to think about vaccinating their kids, even if they're, they're hesitant. This Institute of Medicine tome, as you say, is pretty extensive. And you go into detail about how how they evaluate all of this evidence. And they first, tell me if I'm, I'm understanding this correctly, they go through every single possible vaccine adverse event combination. Is that right? Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So the, the sort of job of the book is to basically take any link between a vaccine and some kind of bad outcome, they call them adverse outcomes. So any link that people have suggested, you know, this vaccine causes multiple sclerosis, you know, this vaccine causes this kind of encephalitis, you know, so all of those things that people have suggested, they want to take all of those and try to evaluate the weight of the evidence on all of those different links. And so that's in some ways why it's so it's such a lot of of work. So there's, you know, 160 of these combinations and each of them requires you to think about, you know, is it plausible there is a link there on the biology? Is there evidence that there is a link there based on any kind of study? What about animal studies? What about people studies? And so for each of these 160 links, they're trying to figure out what is the evidence behind that link by looking at the literature and thinking about the about the science. So it's just an enormous amount of work. And so what did they find? So, you know, what they find is that for most of these links, there is just simply no evidence. So people could speculate, you know, there's a link between the measles vaccine and multiple sclerosis. There is no evidence to suggest that there's a link there. There's no reason to think there would be a link between those things. But there also isn't any evidence to refute it because no one has put together a study on that because there's no reason to think that it would be true. So there's a lot of things like that, which are like a little bit frustrating in the sense that, you know, it would be great to have extensive evidence on all of these things. But, you know, there since there isn't any reason to think of it coming in, there isn't any reason to think of it coming out. Then there are a few things where they they really are able to rule them out. So, for example, links between uh, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and autism, which is something where we actually have a tremendous amount of evidence, you know, saying that there's no link there. 
And then there are a few cases where they do find that there are there are risks to vaccines. You know, some of those are about allergic reactions. So some people have allergic reactions to vaccines. That's something that's pretty extensively monitored. So isn't like a isn't shouldn't be a major concern. And then there are some, you know, very serious complications which are just like vanishingly rare. So in this Institute of Medicine report, they want to be very comprehensive. So if there are, you know, three cases where it seems like a vaccine had an a bad effect on a particular person, they want to say, okay, yes, it seems like that's that's a link. But for most of those, there's just absolutely no reason to be worried about it unless you are in a sort of particular immune compromised group. And then, you know, you very be very unlikely you would be offered these kind of vaccines. So because your doctor would already know. Exactly. Because if you're like a person who's immune compromised, you you are they do not give you these vaccines. And then there's like one sort of risk that is more common, which is, you know, your kid, your kid is likely to get a fever after vaccines. And some kids can have seizures as a result of that. That's not very common, but it does happen. Kids get febrile seizures, even absent vaccines. Some kids just get them and they don't have long term risks. But that is something that can that can happen. So, you know, I think this report is very is very complete. And, you know, the picture it paints is is very reassuring. It's not the same picture of like there's absolutely no risks ever to any vaccines ever to anybody because that's not true. But it does say that there aren't any risks that you, you know, person with healthy one year old, there, there aren't any risks that you should be significantly concerned about, except that if you don't vaccinate, your kid might get the measles. Right. Right. And the risk of death with the measles is tr- like tremendously higher than the risk of allergic reaction. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, people definitely die of the measles. People die of the measles. You don't die of allergic reactions. You don't even die of a seizure and the seizures don't have long-term consequences in as this report shares. I find this so interesting because even with a scientific mindset, you also have your parenting hat. And when you read it and you read things like just even just the naming of the risks or the linkages, it can cause worry. And that's a really hard place to operate from because you want to do everything you can for your child. Uh, And yet the overwhelming evidence shows that vaccines, you write this, I'm going to read this because I think it's so important. Vaccinations are among the most significant public health triumphs of the past 100 years. And yet it can still be hard to think about all of these things. And and I think that one of the things that you do that's also really helpful is um, putting the risks in comparison to other things. Like, it's hard sometimes to comprehend, like, what does it mean to have a risk of an allergic reaction? And you write, it's extremely rare, about uh, 0.22 in 100,000 vaccination or vaccines. So it's so tiny, these little teeny tiny risks that walking out your front door, getting into a car, taking an airplane, even like drinking water might be more risky than some of these things. And that's, I think that's hard to grasp with an emotional mind, yet it's really important that we n- understand at the same time. Yeah. And I think the thing with vaccines is, you know, most kids have some reaction to them. I mean, it's it's an immune challenge and that's how they work. So, you know, my, my four-year-old had his measles vaccine, his, you know, his four-year-old shots the other day and his arms, his arms swelled up because that's what happened. Like, that is a very common reaction to the vaccine. And sort of you see that and it's like, oh my goodness, like my kid's arm is really swollen. But like, that is the thing that happens. It isn't risky. You just, you know, eventually the arm swelling goes down. And so, but I think that there there are these sort of visual cues around vaccines that make parents nervous. And I think if people understand better, 
you know, what, you know, what is going on here? What are the things I might actually want to be worried about? And what are the things that I shouldn't be worried about? And also if people understand, look, there's a real reason for that. You know, when we think about, I think in some ways, this measles outbreak may be good for encouraging people to get the measles vaccine because they may not really understand that actually you could get the measles. Like measles is a thing that people get. It's a disease that is actually out there in the, in the world. It's not something that, you know, is relegated to 19, you know, 1957. Well, in 1950, 500 people died of the measles in the United States and three to four million people got sick. Yeah. I mean, it used to be very, very common. Yeah. So thinking through, I would like it if you would share a little bit about the the Wakefield story, if you don't mind, just to round out our conversation on vaccinations, because I think this is really important because there's been so... There's so much in the news, not even the news, but like in the internet archives, like if you search, you will find so many people talking about potential links between vaccines and autism. And it's been thoroughly debunked, but I think it would be interesting to hear where that the genesis of that idea comes from. Can you share that story? Yeah, absolutely. So in the late 1980s, there was a a doctor in the UK named Andrew Wakefield, and he published a paper in the in the Lancet, which is should be emphasized, it's an extremely good journal. So this isn't just some random medical journal. This is a very, very highly cited, important journal. And what this study does is it summarizes 12 case studies, 12 kids uh, who have autism, and, and basically claims that in at least eight of them, maybe more of them, the autism symptoms began like right after the kids received the measles, mumps, and rubella va- vaccine. And Wakefield argued that there was a reason for that, that in fact, they were linked through some issue about digestive health. It was sort of a little bit vague, but he basically claims that, you know, the kids got this vaccine and then they immediately got autism and there was a reason, there was a reason for that. And so, you know, there's like a lot of things to say about this. One, the conclusion of this paper is not correct. You know, this study is a study of 12 kids. You know, recently a study just came out from Denmark with, I think, 700,000 kids, which looked at the links between autism and vaccines and finds no impact. If anything, kids who are vaccinated are a bit less likely to to have autism. So there's no reason I think this conclusion is is correct. But it is also the case that this paper is fraudulent. So in fact, he this guy didn't just select all the kids who came in his clinic, like he said. He picked particular kids to include. He fabricated details of the cases to make it seem like autism developed right around the time of the vaccine, when in fact the diagnosis was, you know, months or even years later. So he just completely made things made things up. And, you know, when it sort of we looked in like why was he doing this? Well he was actually, you know, preparing a lawsuit against vaccine manufacturers. So the hope was to use this evidence and to bolster that lawsuit to get money. So, you know, this this like everything about this is is terrible. And yet somehow this study I think galvanized this idea that there there is a link between autism and and this vaccine, which has you know caused huge changes in the number of of vaccinations over time. I think is you know at least in part somewhat responsible for some of the resurgence we've seen, particularly in measles, but but in other diseases as well, as people are less likely to be vaccinated. So this guy really did a very, I think in my view, a very bad thing for the world. This is, it's so hard because, first of all, astonishing and shocking that somebody was able to publish a paper based on fabricated evidence. And then and then the fact that it spread so far and wide, I think is a testament to how much we want to understand where things come from. 
and why things are happening. And people want to understand autism and the autism spectrum and why it's happening. And the thing that we do know is that this paper is inaccurate. And there have been so many studies afterwards that have said there is no link between these two two things. So we can continue the study and the questions around like, where does autism come from? And how does it work? And, and what do we do as parents, but we need to separate them from vaccinations. And, and I think what you said about him, this is a very bad thing that he did. I think it's been a bad thing. I agree. So people listening, these are big topics. We have asked Emily about breastfeeding, about sleep training, about vaccinations, and about how to make decisions as a parent. Because one of the things we return to time and time again is this idea of how do we figure out what to do? How do we search for evidence that our ideas or beliefs are true? Can we do that? And what? And where do we lean on and rely on for information? Emily, as an economist, what do you use as your kind of rules for making decisions in the face of less evidence or when the studies don't give you conclusive data or information? How do you make decisions and um, choices as a parent? You know, I think with a lot of these things in parenting, the sort of first key is to try to think about the decision in a, in like a structured way. Like, you know, what could be the costs or benefits of this decision? So, you know, we don't have that much evidence on the impacts of being a stay-at-home parent on your on your kid. It's something I talk about in the book. It's not a place with great evidence. And I think there you think about a decision like that, you first want to say, okay, well, what do I see as the benefits of, you know, of having a job and what do I see as the as the cost? And to, to sort of really step back and try to be objective about the trade-offs that, that you're going to face. And then you can bring, you know, whatever data there is to it. And sometimes the data will be helpful and sometimes it will be less helpful. But I think that by sort of really Really structuring your decision, often you can get a lot of the way there. You can say, well, actually, like, it turns out my preferences are really important and I really love having a job. And actually, you know, even though the you know, data is kind of says either one is fine, this is the choice I'm going to make because, you know, that's the thing that I really want to do. And I think that's the thing that's really going to work for me. And I think that it can be, it can be very valuable to kind of really narrow down what are the key elements of the decision, because that tells you in part what kind of data you would like and lets you be realistic about what kind of data you, you can actually have and, and how much your preferences should really matter, maybe sometimes in the face of pretty limited data. So that's how I try to, I often try to approach my life. It doesn't always work. Sometimes I just like do whatever, but I try to, I try to do a good job. You know, I think one of the you brought up, should you be a stay at home parent? Or should you be a working parent? And what is what does that look like? I think that chapter is so interesting, in particular, because here's another sentence that you wrote that I highlighted, that I think is hilarious. You said, I have figured out that my happiness maximizing allocation is something like eight hours of work, and three hours of kids a day. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, the best. That's the best. (laughs) And you talk about the decreasing value of marginal utility, which is such an economic term and makes me laugh because I talk about it. I'm not an economist, but maybe you'll think this is funny or maybe you'll groan. But I talk about it with my husband because we can always tell which dirty dishes are mine because I leave one bite of food on the plate. And I don't know why. I'm not aware that I do it. But I, if I go back around the house, I'm like, why? There's like one bite of hamburger. What's left? And so we joke that it's because like that last bite is just not as good as the first bite because each subsequent bite is not as good because your hunger wanes. And so can you explain to people what uh, marginal utility is and why it might be different for something like working versus being with your kids? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've articulated it very well. The idea with marginal utility is that as you have more of something, additional amounts of it are less good. So if you have a hamburger, you know, you really want a hamburger, like if you're really hungry, like a first bite is great and the second bite is, you know, great, but not quite as great. And then by the last bite, like maybe you're full or you're tired of the hamburger or it's a little bit colder, whatever, like your happiness associated with each additional bite is going down over time. And the same kind of logic often applies to time with activities. So, you know, the first hour that you spend in this case with your kids is really great because you don't haven't seen them all day. And like, it's, you know, nice to catch up and find out what they're, what they're doing. You know, the second hour, it's, it's also nice. Um, And then, you know, as you're kind of on hour six, at least for some of us, like, you know, the kind of, you're ready for a break, the utility is going, is going down. And so the same is sort of true. What I'd say in the book is that for me, that the initial utility is really, really, really high, but the, you know, the decline is reasonably, is reasonably quick. You know, I, I don't, I am not a person, uh, particularly when they were very little who, who wants to spend, you know, seven hours a day with a baby. And, you know, my job has the same feature, just like the first hour is better than the second hour, but the, the decline is slower. So it's, even though the kids, the first hour with the kids is much better than the first hour at my job, because the decline is faster, you know, there's a point at which I would rather spend the next hour at my job. So that's why I sort of talk about you want to like do that trade-off and, and think about the marginal utility rather than a total utility. And I think that sort of second piece is kind of the key because you'll say, oh, you want to spend more time at your, at your job. It must be that you like your job better than your kids. But that's like absolutely not true. I definitely like my kids better. I just, I like them, you know, really a lot. bad parent but that's what it is no it's spoken like a true economist exactly and, and i love for people listening there's there's a section in here called structuring the decision and i think that what emily advocates for is three-pronged decision which is so important and often overlooked um which is what's best for your child what do you want to do? And then in this case, when you talk about parenting decisions and where your children go and childcare, the third was, what are the implications on family budget? But the third might be, what are the implications on your family, right? So your child, you and your family, they're all different. And they have different needs and desires. So making a decision doesn't just necessarily decisions aren't binary sometimes. Yeah, exactly. That there are, there are different considerations and different families are going to have sort of different pieces of those considerations. 100%. Emily, where can people find you? Where is your book being sold? And and where all the things? Hopefully my book is being sold everywhere, but Amazon is always a good place to find books. And we have an audiobook and hardcover and a Kindle. So whatever is your like reading system, hopefully you can find it there. And you can find me at, at Brown University. I have, if people want to read my research, which is not about babies at all, you can check me out there. What is the research about now at Brown? Most of my research is about econometric methods, so that's fun, and and a little bit about diet. So I've been doing a lot of stuff on on dietary choices and what do we know about their benefits and how can we learn more about those or how can we not learn in some cases. Thank you so much for writing this book and for coming on the show for a second time. This has been wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. 
If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.